Welcome to episode 101 of the Open Pantry Podcast. I hope you're well. As always, this next podcast with Dave from Patient Wolf Gin in Melbourne is just exceptional. These guys have top shelf gin in Victoria, if not Australia, if not the world at the moment. They're a pretty young brand, but they're just exceptional quality and I feel so lucky to have a chat with him just a little bit ago and I think you're really going to get something out of this, especially if you really care about providential ingredients and, and really the origin of really great quality gin. Enjoy this podcast. Welcome to the Open Pantry Podcast for yet another episode. It's fantastic to have you listening along. Our next guest is from Patient Wolf Distilling Co., which is a brand born and bred out of the northern suburbs of Melbourne and in December 2019 moved into a new distillery and world-class spot in Melbourne's South Bank area. They normally hold masterclasses, which I'm certainly looking uh, forward to coming and attending very, very soon. Bought some uh, fantastic gin online yesterday, which I look forward to having, dropping in and having very soon as well. So thanks so much to Dave Irwin, who's the head distiller and co-founder for joining me on today's podcast. Thanks, Sean. Thank you for having me. Um, yeah, it's great to, great to be able to finally meet you and have a bit of a chat and happy that you brought some of the gin. And yeah, if you need any tips, let me know. Absolutely. I can't wait to, can't wait to try it, my friend. Um, yes. So how did, you, how, did it, how did the Patient Wolf you know, brand start? Because it, it looks like such a sexy brand and um, obviously it's in Melbourne and gin, gin distilling especially has come up in the last couple of years as, as been really, really prominent and exciting. So how did you guys start it out? Yeah, well, I think um, we're sort of working, working corporate jobs. So I was working um, with a, a friend at work, a colleague. And so we, we've been working on a few things together for about a year, year and a half, and just sort of wondering what else we can do. I think I was kind of looking to, to move on and find something a bit more exciting. Always mm-hmm. wanted to do something for myself. And we both had this sort of, this, I guess we wanted to do something handcrafted and something that we could, you know, build with our own, you know, build with our own two hands and just get in there. We were working in financial services marketing, so pretty much the dullest of the dull. <laughs> 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 but, uh, you know, it had its moments, but yeah, so we definitely wanted to get out of there. And so we just spent a bit of time um, thinking about what we could do. Uh, we used to go to a local dive bar and have a couple of beers after work. And that was when it sort of started. So we'll just be talking about what we wanted to get into. I always had this, um, a desire to distill. Um, obviously, whiskey is the first one you think about. Yes. And as we started just going and getting into it, we we're like, well, yeah, distilling would be great. What are we going to do? We looked at you know, vodka and we looked at gin. We looked at um, tequila and obviously whiskey and rum. And we're just sort of thinking, you know, what, what's the best way to go about it? And as we were doing this, we were having GNTs and we're just like, well, you know. And then, you know, gin was just exploding. So Matt had been in the UK just as that. I think um, the gin craze had started in the UK and London. So Sipsmith was going and all these new things were happening. And then as we researched gin more, we just found how versatile and how, you know, and how kind of there was just so much history that surrounded it and, mm-hmm. and the opportunity within it. And it kind of meant that there were so many ways you can take it. So, yeah, it was really exciting. That's kind of what started it. Then four years of planning, um, we bought a little still. Yeah, so we, we spent our time. We, we basically... Um, kind of did it like we'd do a normal project but you know knowing that we'd actually at the end of the day having to be fronting up our own money to do it um so 
was lucky enough to to get a redundancy from my work just about three months prior to the still landing. But prior to that, we'd have, we were sat down in a cafe just thinking, well, are we going to do it? We looked at the numbers, we talked to distributors and we talked to a lot of the other distilleries. So I'd been having conversations with the likes of, you know, Cam from Four Pillars and Will mm-hmm. from Ocean Rose and um, Jason Griff from Poor Tom's, um, had a few chats with Locke. And we'd also been talking to a guy in Denmark, um, Anders Bilgram, and so just been, because he had a similar still to what we have here. Okay. We were looking at what we're going to do. And that was the decision point. It was like, well, in four years' time, are we going to be sat in this cafe just saying, well, we were going to open a distillery. And I think that's <laughs> when we put a deposit on the still. And yeah, the rest is history. Is there, is there a reason why you picked bread? Like, was it a, was it, because when I first started, because I wanted to be a chef, right? When I was 16, 15, 16. And then I sort of fell into a Bakes Delight career. Yeah. Um, and so I had this romance around what bread was and, and, and all that kind of stuff. Like, did you, was it what you thought it was going to be when you jumped into it? I remember my biggest feeling when thinking about learning to bake was fear of the ovens. Uh, <laughs> I, I spent six to 12 months uh, out the front of the store selling bread. Um, and just, I loved the business. I loved the, the smell, I loved how easy it was to sell the product, um, but there was that fear of, of the ovens. Um, and yeah, so I remember I was trying to get, get over that and you get over it pretty quickly with a, with a couple of scars. Um, Absolutely. Mm. But it's, it's, you know, having worked in restaurants, the, the pace was, was, I was used to that. So um, certainly the pace in a bakery is very similar. You've got to move quite quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, it's physical, yeah, nothing that I, I wasn't expecting, but, but probably what I didn't expect um, was how much fun it would be and how rewarding it would be. Um, just you know, the, the fact that you can come in to an empty shop at sometimes two o'clock in the morning, so early, mm-hmm. uh, but come in with, with nothing except the raw ingredients and leave at the end of a baking shift and you've produced an entire shop's worth of bread from scratch. Um, that's an incredible sense of achievement and it's hard to replicate that in other jobs. There's very few other jobs you do where you get to literally start every day from scratch and end up with this amazing result. Um, And it's unforgiving. You know, if you, one baker doesn't show up, I mean, you would remember this from running Mm. doors. Um, Everyone's, everyone's got a pretty critical role to play. And if somebody doesn't show up or somebody doesn't pull their weight, it's, uh, it's, it's a tough gig for everybody else. Yeah, I've, um, I've been on the end of many, um, many baking shifts, which should have been me and someone else that just became me. Yeah. And um, yeah, and a, lo- a, you know, a shorter day turned into a longer day. But, um, but you learn so much through those, you know, through those harder shifts. Yeah. Um, and it's always that baking, um, it's, it's part science, part art, but it's also a lot of hard work. And I think that's, that's the bit that um, people can romanticize and uh, not realize that, um, you know, if you think about artisan bakery and baking, it all looks very flowery and, uh, and, and, um, you know, it looks quite, quite uh, soft and easy, but Mm. it's, it's physical. You're lifting heavy bags. You're, uh, you're moving constantly. You're on your feet for the, the whole shift um but it's it's fun it's a lot of fun yeah i totally agree I, I can't think of another i can't think of another type of business especially in franchise land that you literally start with nothing every day 
you you build to a product and then you actually sell that product in the same day. Like there's not there's not many that have that whole component, which I think makes makes the light so synonymous with you know quality and experience. It it yeah, it is interesting and it's um it's it's quite complex. I mean, there's not any retail models where you're a production facility also, and it's it's very decentralized. So, you know, one of the first questions we always get when people look at the business is, well, why don't you centralize the baking and then send the product out to the stores? Um, and a lot of businesses have got, gone down that, that model and it probably works for them. Um, but it's not us. It's uh, you, you lose that freshness, you lose that quality, you lose that connection with the product. Um, and the other thing we found with decentralization is, you can actually tailor it to your local community a lot better. Um, and it really worked for us through COVID was just that ability to adapt and adjust, not just on a daily basis in every location, but almost on an hourly basis, you know, as uh, production, well, demand just spiked and went through the roof. Uh, bakeries were able to adjust really quickly. Yeah. Which I definitely want to, I definitely want to touch on in a minute. Um, but I want to go back a bit and, and, like this is obviously the 40th year in operation. It's, it's an amazing success story, um, especially in this year. How did, how did Bakes Delight get to that point that it, that it became so successful? Like how did it evolve to those four countries and so many outlets? Yeah, I'd love to say there was a grand plan when, we, when it was started <laughs> 40 years ago, um, but it's really just been a, an evolution. Um, so Elise's parents, Roger and Leslie Gillespie, started the business in, in Hawthorne um, 40 years ago, to, almost today. And their plan wasn't to have a network of, you know, six, seven hundred stores. It was really just to open a great bakery. Um, mm. Baking had been in Roger's family for four or five generations. Um, and they, they opened up the shop. It did incredibly well um, and they opened up another one that did pretty well they got to 20 um, and then actually somebody gave them some advice and that advice was there's no future for your business in Australia if you really want to grow this model you need to go to the US so mm. they actually left the, the 20 stores in the hands of, of managers and moved over with a young family to San Francisco back, that would have been, I don't know, somewhere in the eighties, mm. uh, opened up a few shops, it didn't work, but what they did discover over in the U S was franchising as a model. And they brought that back to their 20 businesses um, and gave the managers the opportunity to, to buy in, to, to become owners. Mm -hmm. And the rest is history. What they found almost overnight was the, the sales jumped right up, but the profitability doubled almost overnight because that's skin in the game. And it's been one of the mantras for the business ever since is um, just shared success. It's, it's a lesson that Roger and Leslie learned back then was when you share in that success, um, you become more successful because your business can, can really grow exponentially. So it uh, took off through Australia through the, the, the late 90s, early 2000s, and then mm. international expansion. You know, New, New Zealand was a, a natural extension to Australia. And um, Canada came about through just looking at the different markets out there and the, the conditions and mm -hmm. access to good wheat's sort of one of the prerequisites for us. Um, and Canada just looked like a pretty good place to expand the business to. And again, love to say we went over there and had this great growth trajectory that was nice and stable, but it's, uh, 
it's been it's been a lot of hard lessons um, tailoring the business to the Canadian market. Mm-hmm. We've learned the hard way, we've um, but we've adjusted really well over there, and the, the business is in a great spot. I think we've got 125 in Canada, um, and yeah, plans are just to keep steadily opening. Mm. Do you think one of the benefits of Bakesalite and the structure over the years is because it has remained a family business? And I mean, because it, it is very, very different to any other, any other franchise in the marketplace, especially in the Australian marketplace that it is, you know, Roger and Leslie, like I knew for a long period of time in my career with Bakes Delight. And, and that was always a synergy that I really looked to. It was always, it was always a structure that I looked to with fondness and I knew that I could talk to them, which is very, I think very unusual for any other franchise in Australia. Like, do you think that's part of the reason why it grew just the basis of trust? Maybe, um, you know, and I've thought about this question a, a fair bit over the years. You know, what would our business be like if private equity had bought it mm. or if, mm-hmm. um, if we'd listed publicly? Um, and it's, it's almost impossible to tell. I think we've seen yeah. bad examples of both. You know, there, there are plenty of great listed franchise businesses that do a phenomenal job. Mm. Um, then there's some some horror stories also. So I think a lot of it just comes down to, to culture and, and management. Mm-hmm. Um, the one thing I, I would say, though, is, you know, it's impossible to tell whether we'd be bigger, more successful, but we'd be different. It would definitely feel different. And that point you just touched on, which was you felt like you could get in touch with the owners and have a conversation with them. Um, we still like to feel that way today um, mm. and and uh, while don't certainly don't have all franchisees calling me all the time um, they, they can you know the, it's not like the, the the numbers not listed they they can pick mm. up the phone and call anyone uh, and call Lisa and I directly or call the founders some of them still do <laughs> um, and that's important to us it doesn't matter the size of, of the business you should still be able to talk to your business partners um, whenever they want to speak to you. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. So it's uh, one thing that, that probably has worked in our favor being a, um, you know, a a family run business is we we've stuck pretty close to that core of what the business is about just in terms of product range, what we do, Mm. do, what we don't do. Mm -hmm. There's always temptation to venture off into different lines, different categories, different areas. uh, And um, they're definitely, you know, there's, there are opportunities there, but there's also a lot of risk in, in venturing away from that core of what, what makes you great in the first place. Um, and I think that's one of the things we're proud of is we've stuck to that core, but we've innovated within that core range of products and it's served us well over the years. Yeah. I think, I think that's where I got my knowledge of around being special for something was more important than being a jack of all trades to everyone. Like if you don't specialize in something, you're just a me too brand. And I remember, you know, even as a franchise partner sitting in heated discussions with other franchise partner and Roger and Leslie or whoever attended from head office about how we should put in pies or how we should, you know, how we should put in coffee or how we should do these different things. Like it took a, I think it took us six months or 12, 12 months of development to finally figure out we were going to put milk in or we were going to put drinks in. Like that was a, that was a big discussion for the brand at that point in the early 2000s. I mean, um, but it, but it sort of taught me that you need to 
specialize in something, otherwise your customer is not going to continue to come back. Which yeah, really yeah, and don't worry, Sean, we still have those debates. <laughs> um, I reckon every six months the, the pie the pie question <laughs> comes up. Um, but but you're right, you've got to be special and got to be good at uh, or very good at 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 what you do. Mm-hmm. Um, but you've also got to keep evolving and innovating within that. So, you know, the, the, the best example for us is, you know, bread, bread really is the core of our business. And for a long time, that good old fashioned white block was the number one selling product. Yeah. Um, but listening to your customers and finding out what the pain points are, that's where the innovation can really come from. And, you know, parents love, well, kids love soft white bread. They love, they love mm-hmm. those sandwiches. Um, but for, for mum, um, the concern is, well, could it be healthier? I want to give them healthier options. And that's where something like a high fiber white we developed, um, would have been, I, I don't know if we would have had it in your time. Well, yeah, you did. Yeah. It was the last couple of years. So yeah. 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 Years ago. Mm-hmm. So that, that came in just solving that problem for, for mum. Um, and that's, you know, long since overtaken uh, white, Blocks is our number one selling product. Yeah, well, when it was introduced, it was quite niche. So, mm-hmm. yeah, stick to the core, but innovate within that core. Let's let's talk about COVID times. Let's talk about what one of the biggest challenges for the brand has been. You know, uh, in this time, David, given that you do have shopping center sites, you do have strip sites. They're everywhere. You're a massive brand. Like, what's the kind of what's a couple of things that you guys have had to do in to this time to make it, to keep the relevance of the brand? Yeah, um, look, it's been it's it's been difficult, but um, I have to say at the outset, we've we've been incredibly fortunate as a as a business and as a brand. Um, the nature of the products that we we sell, it's a, it's a staple, um, and fresh fresh grocery has performed really well throughout COVID as people um, go back to basics, eat more at home. Um, unfortunately, can't dine out as as much as they would like to. Um, those are those are trends that have worked in Baker's Light's favour. Mm-hmm. Um, but there've been no shortage of challenges for us as a brand um, through it all. And you know, the early days of of COVID, March, April, it was just daily, you know, trying to absorb the information that was coming in. Um, keep people focused, keep staff safe, um, implement new procedures to to you know socially distance in store and um, in the in in the back of the bakeries mm. um, and then supply chain was a massive challenge for us you know we had yeah. huge peaks through that panic buying period in in late March early early April um, and trying to keep the bakeries supplied with raw ingredients was a massive challenge um, and one that the team handled really really well um, and since then it's been it's it, it's been just different experiences and different markets. So, you know, we're, we're going through something completely differently here in Victoria at the moment compared to the rest of the country. Um, New Zealand, our entire operation was shut down for, for six mm. weeks. Um, and that happened, you know, we were told uh, on Tuesday that we're an essential service and we'd be able to keep trading and then found out on Tuesday night that we'd have to shut the next day. Wow. Um, and, and, you know, that's, that's obviously really tough for the franchisees and the employees. Um, mm-hmm. And a, a story that's been repeated in a number of industries across Australia, New Zealand and the world. But, um, you know, for us at the moment, uh, it's, it's just managing those two ends of the spectrum. So we've got most of our network performing really, really well. 
Um, and then we've got CBD locations and major shopping centers that are struggling. So providing the franchisees with support, um, trying to forecast what the, the return to, to some form of normal looks like. Um, mm. And in the meantime, uh, managing the team all working remotely. Well, obviously, you know, you and Elisa managing a massive, a massive team here in, uh, here in Australia, and you've got different restrictions in different states. Like, how have you both been able to sort of manage the core, you know, head office team, but also make sure that you're telling your franchise partners the correct things in different states? Like, has that been, has that been really challenging during this time? Um, easier than, than we probably thought it was going to be at the outset. Um, you know, we'd, we'd done a lot of work getting ready to work from home anyway. Before COVID, we were due to shut our office for a refurbishment right. um, post-Easter. So we'd, we'd got everyone ready, um, got all the equipment ready for work from home. Mm -hmm. um, and so we just basically pulled the trigger on that a couple of, couple of weeks earlier than we otherwise would have been planning. Mm -hmm. um, and the, the communication tools are amazing and we were underutilizing them prior to COVID and that's been one of the biggest learnings for us is how little travel you actually need to do to run a business this size. You know, we're all guilty of, of running around, um, not like headless chooks, but, but you know, traveling more than we needed to. Sure. Uh, I actually feel more connected to our franchise network now um, than, than when we were able to travel because we just set up regular Zoom calls with the, the entire network. We jump on the area managers once, which they do quite regularly. We can actually speak to people face-to-face -face in different parts of the country on any given day. Um, and the same with our, our team. Um, but having said that, I'm looking forward to, at some point, getting out and seeing our stores again. Um, and definitely looking forward to getting into our brand new office, which is there ready waiting for us. Uh, <laughs> the green light for us to be able to move back in. Yeah, for sure. Do you think, do you think this is going to change how, you, how the office team works over the long term, David? Yeah. Do you think, so do you think there'll be certain amounts of times you will be in the office and then prescribed times you won't be in the office or, yeah. or working from home? Um, I, I think what, what we've learned is the the limitations and the, the upside of work from home. So, so you know, it's, it's definitely been a lot better and a lot easier and there are a lot of benefits that we mm. wouldn't have foreseen before. So you think about the amount of time people waste, you know, commuting in and out of office during peak hour, um, how much easier it is for working parents to be able to drop their kids off, look after their kids um, if they've got that flexibility. So we're gonna maintain mm. a lot of that. We're certainly not a business that mandates that people need to be in at a certain time and leave at a certain time. Um, and our flexibility with that's going to be even greater than it was before. So you know, the mantra is be, be there when you need to be there. And yeah, when sure. you need to be there is from my point of view, it's, it's, it's when you're collaborating, that's the bit that I miss over zoom. So, you know, you can't, there are some limitations there. There are things that you can't do, um, when you've got 10 people on a, a group call that you can when you've got 10 people in a room. Um, it's just a, it's a different dynamic. And uh, if there is a way of replicating that digitally, we haven't worked it out yet. Um, and um, I, I'm looking forward to getting that back. But flexibility is going to be, going to be a, a huge part of the way we do business moving forward. Um, and likewise, you know, even with our support teams, um, 
they're very mobile, they're all over the country, and they've been able to do a phenomenal job of supporting the franchisees without being there physically in the store. So we've mm. you know, maintained a lot of those practices after COVID. How have you done, um, just thought of it now, like how have you done product development during this time? Because you guys aren't together. Like I remember how that would be, you know, doing product development and everyone sort of chiming in on their opinion and bakeries testing stuff. And like, yeah. how have you done that during this time? Um, we've put a lot of product development on hold in the early stages because mm-hmm. what, we, what we worked out was customers weren't looking for new, they were looking for um, relevance and, and things that would solve the problem for them. So, you know, just the sim- simplicity of eating from home, we had products in our range that um, we could just pull out and elevate. Um, so something as simple as pizza bases, you know, mm. quarter of our stores made those. Um, and we identified pretty early on that, that you know, that eat from home was going to be a, a, a big trend and that um, parents in particular were looking for stuff to do with their kids that was easy, but still a bit of a sense of achievement. So mm. giving them a pizza base and the, the ingredients to make their own um, rather than just buying one of our pizzas um, mm. was, was a great solution. Required no product development, just um, elevate a product that we already had. So... Um, yeah, first few months was more about getting the right bits of the range into the right places. Um, since then, the test bakeries, you know, fired up again. So our um, production team in the test bakery are, are in there on most days. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, they, they'll, 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 they did a delivery two days ago. So they'll, they'll test bake their products, um, deliver to, to the executives that are involved in that product development process and um, then we jump on zoom and we we eat as a group (laughs) (laughs) that's really cool (laughs) Um, do you think do you think this is going to change certain store on store sales for long period time the reason I ask is if you know we just talked about you guys you know potentially working from home more Um, if everyone does that and all of a sudden five days a week that would have been spent in the city is two days or three days a week in the city, do you think the, the um, change in that is the outer suburban bakes the light stores will all of a sudden, um, you know, get some more volume because their client, their customer base is more around their store? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yes. Uh, and how long that, that lasts, um, that's anyone's question. Mm. But, but I do think there'll be, some, there'll be some sort of short, medium and then long-term changes to the way people behave and um, I'd be surprised if most businesses aren't thinking the same way we are just in terms of flexibility when people need to be in the office when they don't need to be in the office and I know a lot are looking at their office space and um, and uh, quite critically and looking at downsizing it so so I think there'll be some permanent shifts there um, you know definitely what we're seeing across the country as um, as different states go through, you know, ease out of restrictions, is um, they maintain a lot of the behaviours. So, you know, WA um, sales are still really, really good for us there, mm. even mm. though it's it's um, it's almost uh, you know, back to normal. Well, yeah, fr- from a Melbourne perspective, it looks very normal. Yes, but the changes of behaviour have stuck, and I know in hospitality and you know places like Sydney, it's still a struggle. People are. Uh, even without the um, the strictness of res- restrictions, um, people are moderating their behaviour. They're going out less. They're eating more at home. So you know, 
it's impossible to predict what five, 10 years is going to look like, but the next 12 months at least, we're, um, we're expecting a lot of that behavior to, to stick. Yeah. Um, do you think there's ever been a better time to start a bakery? And the reason why, the reason why I ask is I've never not like when, when I had bakeries, all we could, you know, all you'd hear about is low carb and, and gluten-free and, and all that kind of stuff has been, you know, things that were sort of starting to come through the market. But now, like I've never seen so many, you know, this growth in bakeries across the board, you know, happen with things like sourdough and, and, and all that kind of stuff come yeah. through. Like, can you think of a better renaissance kind of time for bakeries at the moment, though? Oh, it's a pretty good time. Um, look, it, it is a good time for the, the industry and, and for our business. Um, I think, um, I mean, what we see, though, the, the market's been... The bread market in Australia has been been pretty flat for you know it's slight growth for the last few years, mm. um, and while there's been you know a lot of artisan players coming into the market, they're, they're such a tiny part of the overall market, yeah, and cool. almost it's it's quite trend based. One comes in, one goes out. They don't actually mm. shift the market share. Mm-hmm. Um, the story really is about what the supermarkets are doing. Um, mm-hmm. You know that's that's the big player in the in the well in all fresh food, but. Yes. Uh, and we've obviously we've we've got some pretty big players in there um, with decent amount of resources, and um, they've been duking it up uh, over the last few years. And um, you know, a lot of downward pressure on prices that started to shift as wheat prices have gone up. Mm-hmm. Um, but it it's it's still it's it's a it's a great business to be in, um, and it's shown its resilience through recessions, through pandemics, through um, you know generations and generations, uh, which is why we're we're pretty confident about the future. Yeah. So let's talk about the future because this is the fortieth year, as we said at the start of this podcast. Like, what what are you guys planning for the celebrations of the fortieth year? You know. Well, we're actually this weekend, we were going to be um, having a big international conference um, in the Gold Coast, which is mm-hmm. obviously not happening. So <laughs> the plans have shifted somewhat. Um, you know, we, we, we wanted to go ahead with the, the campaign that we're, we're doing at the moment, which is just a joyful celebration of, of the business and the brand. Mm. Um, and we, we actually, we debated whether we should do it at this time. Um, and we made the decision to, to go ahead because we would definitely help us in the future. Um, and also the sense of community around South Melbourne, South Bank, um, Port Phillip in general. Yes. I think uh, that, that's been really strong and people really, you know, sort of they're sitting behind all those um, distillers and breweries in the area. So everywhere that I go, I've been reaching out to all the other guys who are, you know, similar, similar um, situations, just seeing how they're getting on. And yeah, similar story where I've found that their consumers are really started to sort of get behind them a bit, their local guys. So I think that's positive. And if anything, that'll help, you know, in the bar scene as well, where a sense of community and yeah, buying local will hopefully be prevalent. Yeah. yeah. If I can ask you, like, how, how do you think that the liquor industry is going from a supplier perspective overall and the, the girls and guys you talk to? Because we, like, you know, people who completely outside the industry, all they can hear about is the noise that, you know, alcohol sales are up, yeah. you know, across the board in Dan Murphy's or wherever it would be. But they don't think about how it's moved from, it's simply moved from on-premise to off-premise and retail. Like... How are how are the people you're speaking to going, Dave? Um, that's uh, yeah. 
So some are doing well um, and others are not. A lot of it depends on the stage of their business as well. Sure. Um, one thing that we've just started to do, it's given us a bit of time to kind of reflect and a few of us have got together to create a, um, a spirits association in Victoria. Great idea. Um, and the first thing that we talked about was that we just don't want it to be a distillers association because all the mm. people that were originally talking, we're all, you know, we're all in the ADA or Australian distillers association. We knew that we needed something in Victoria, um, but we wanted to open up to, you know, there's people who supply glass to, you know, frag to the retailer, right to the bartender. So everybody has a say in the state of spirits to really, and connecting that bartender with the local provider, I think that's huge. And also, and one of the main reasons is getting us on the map, you know, so that tourism Victoria actually looks at just to distilleries um, mm. and spirits producers as uh, a strong source of tourism for them. And I Absolutely. think wineries and breweries definitely have that in food, but yeah, so that was one of the key things, I think. Um, and, geez, I can't remember the question now. Sorry. How, <laughs> how do you feel the industry is going? Like, how do you, what, yeah, what do you think the yeah, feeling so, is? Yeah. And so a lot of the people on that, um, so we'd have these forums of people who were with the committee and, and some were really struggling. Like Some are moving distilleries right now. So they're in the process of, you know, building out their new, their new mm. home with such an uncertain and I know what this was like. I think we probably lost a year of progress because I was doing this. Um, mm. Just all my attention was focused on this. It was so hard to do everything on top of it. So, yeah. And then others, I think, have pivoted well. Um, definitely the guys out in, in the, yeah, the smaller towns, um, rural, I think has been really hard for them just because they do get all that city tourism coming out, which is just gone. Yeah. Good point. And it's a big part of their of their makeup, um, but nobody's nobody's really sort of reached out in in a way that's been hugely negative either. So um, I think it's okay, but as we keep going on and on, it's going to get harder and harder. Uh, as we do go into summer and yeah, spring and summer, booze sales do increase. So hopefully that'll give them the buffer to be able to just continue on. Yeah, I think this this summer is is critical for food hospitality across um, across Victoria. Like if it doesn't if it doesn't work, you know there's a there's a lot of people in trouble. So um, I'm I'm glad you built a community which can support it. So well done. Um, my last question before um, before I let you go is one I'm asking to all my guests at the moment, which is, what are you looking forward to doing post pandemic that you can't do now? <laughs> you used to be older, do Dave. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> what are you looking forward to, mate? Going into a bar, <laughs> I at the bar by myself and talking to the to the bar manager or the person pouring me the cocktail. Yeah, so true, isn't it? Some of the best conversations are those conversations between the bar manager or the publican, and uh, yeah, I really miss that too. Absolutely, yeah. Oh, um, I'm Surf, of course, but you know, <laughs> do that. <laughs> um, Dave, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. I really do appreciate it. How is um, how is the best way that people can find out more about Patient Wolf and, and buy some gin off you guys? Yeah, so just jump on the on the website. Um, we are stocked. So Melbourne Dry is stocked, and you know Dan Murphy's Liquor Land, BWS, all the big guys. So if you see it out there, give it a look. It is delicious juice. I do say so myself. Um, 
and yeah, so go online. We also have our Insta and Facebook. Um, and if you subscribe, we do, we're starting to build up our, our subscribe offer. Um, we do giveaways every month. And whenever there's a new release, subscribers get first, first go at it. Cool. I'll make sure I link that up in the podcast notes as always. And I really appreciate your time, Dave. Thanks so much. Thanks very much, Sean. Thanks so much for tuning in to another episode of the Open Pantry Podcast. As always, it's so fantastic to have you listening. So thank you so much. Make sure that you subscribe. Make sure that you write me a comment and let me know what you think. And make sure you share it as well. Like if you think this is a fantastic podcast that people need to know about, I'd really love you to share it. Thanks so much. Thank you.